We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This podcast episode is brought to you by Coors Light. These days, everything is go, go, go. It's nonstop hustle all the time. Work, friends, family expect you to be on 24-7. Well, sometimes you just need to reach for a Coors Light because it's made to chill. Coors Light is cold lagered, cold filtered, and cold packaged. It's as crisp and refreshing as the Colorado Rockies. It is literally made to chill. Coors Light is the one I choose when I need to unwind. So when you want to hit reset, reach for the beer that's made to chill. Get Coors Light in the new look delivered straight to your door with Drizzly or Instacart. Celebrate responsibly. Coors Brewing Company, Golden, Colorado. Blue Liar. Welcome back. This is the Big Blue Banter, New York Giants football podcast. I'm Dan Schneier, joined as always by co-host Nick Filato, and we've given you a lot of draft recap in the last week or so. It's been a lot of fun. It's all Giants-focused, and it has been kind of us in this bubble that I feel like we've been in for now, a few years now, kind of just watching so much film on one team. And obviously Nick and I don't just exclusively watch the Giants. We try to watch all teams, but that's not easy to do. So what we wanted to do on today's podcast is bring in somebody who has a really good grasp of the NFL overall, who watches film on a lot of these teams, and who has opinions that aren't inside the Giants' bubble. So I thought no one better to do that with than Sigmund Bloom, the co-owner over at footballguys.com. I'm not sure even the guys running the R Lads pages know the depth charts of 32 teams better than Sig over there. i got to be honest with you. I think this man knows these depth charts better than those guys over there. And that's a bit of a joke, but that just shows you kind of the extent and the respect I have for his football knowledge. So it's really exciting to get him on. Sig, how you doing today? And tell the people where they can find all your work, because I didn't do a great job of just introducing that as I brought you in right here. Oh, I'm just happy to be here and talk some football with some people that love football. Uh, this is a great time to be obsessed with football because we have so much uh, energy that was released by all of these moves during the draft, by the picks, and it shows us, I like to say, teams can't lie during the draft. And it shows us what they think is important, how they value players, how they look at their current roster. In the uh, case of teams that have new decision makers, you know, we're on the edge of our seat seeing what we can learn about their philosophy. And uh, as far as me and my work, football guys, footballguys.com, you know, if you play any kind of fantasy football, we've got you covered. First thing we're thinking about when we wake up, last thing. Uh, before we fall asleep, if that sounds like you, if football is that for you, uh, then you probably will find something for you at Football Guys. That's great, Sig. And I guess we'll just start with the Giants draft in general from a 30,000-foot mm-hmm. view. What were your overall thoughts on the Giants 2021, not just their draft players, but the process that they had heading into the draft and what actually transpired? Well, obviously, the headline here is that Dave Gettleman trades down. Dave Gettleman trades down. Uh, and it's something that was his hand forced whenever the Eagles moved in front of the Giants to get Devontae Smith, or is it something that he was open to? Because I think you know, the Bears were lighting up the phones of teams. I mean, they might have even been calling the Falcons, for all we know. But certainly they were calling teams. We have some confirmation they were calling the Bear. Uh, sorry, the Panthers at number eight. So maybe that offer would have been too good to pass up, even if Smith were was still on the clock. Um, I think that you can see individually on a pick-by-pick basis 
how some of these picks fit and they're committed to the system that they have. But at the same time, I'm going to refer to something that Dan was talking about. I think you saw a draft where they were very focused on players that they met with, and maybe because of that, they wanted to move some of that capital forward in a draft next year where they would feel more comfortable with the larger pool of players instead of the smaller pool that was reduced even more because of what puts them in their comfort zone when it's time to write a name on a card and turn it in. Yeah, I think that stands out as something that we obviously saw in this draft class. I mean, it's been a big focus of this regime since Joe Judge took over last year. They want to make sure they have the right culture fits in here. And you've seen it even in previous moves before Judge got here, the decision to trade off Odell Beckham at a point where he was still just 26 years old and still maybe some believe at the peak of his career. But I did want to dive into a little bit from your standpoint, because I know you have a really good graph sig of all, like I mentioned, all these depth charts, but also the draft class. You do in-depth work there. So I feel like you have a nice overall view of that. And by the way, just for those I feel like Sig was a little bit modest in his intro to what he does over there at Football Guys. I mean, Football Guys is one of the best sites you can read. It is mostly fantasy-based, but it's also just NFL analysts as well. And I find myself reading so much of their work. And mostly for me, it's following along with the podcast. Sig's on the Audible and on the couch. That's been a goal of mine to eventually get on the couch <laughs> an interview with you over there. I feel like now that I've transitioned back into the fantasy side of things over at CBS, I got a little bit of more of a case to make there. We'll talk about that later. But in general, I mean, listen, he accumulated uh, almost 100,000 followers on Twitter for a reason. Sig has good takes. So just just a little shout out, a little bit more selfless. Prom- I, I know you don't want to do the promotion, Sig. I know that's not your thing, but I want to make sure everyone listening knows where they can follow your work. But I did want to get an overall feel from you on how you felt the Giants did from a value standpoint with each pick. Obviously, we can touch more on those day one and two picks. The day three picks to me are more dart throws across the board for all teams. But let's focus day one and day two, how you felt the Giants did uh, from a value standpoint. Yeah, and that's really the the meat of the draft. I don't know what happened with the Kadarius-Tony pick, honestly. I don't know if they just got in their mind that they wanted to improve the slot from Sterling Shepard. I don't know if they got in their mind that they needed to add another playmaker, someone who could add value to touches. I'm not really sure what happened there. Uh, I don't think 20 was a terrible reach, especially when you factor in the extra draft capital that they got by moving down from 11 to 20. Uh, I don't, I think we probably had Tony more of like a late first round, early second round pick, and a boom bust pick, and that maybe seems a little out of character for the Giants uh, because you know this is a player that has a high potential. Let's call it like a knucklehead factor, you know, a one year wonder, and a player who's not a finished product, a player where you can see the traits, you can even see the traits married to skills sometimes. But he's a player that's going to have to be coached up. And what I don't understand is, you know, if you want wanted somebody to manufacture touches for, we already have that in Saquon Barkley. Uh, you know, somebody who keeps the defense honest on the jet sweep motion. I think Darius Slayton can do that. Um, you know, maybe Tony's not as dynamic as Sterling Shepard. I'm sorry, Shepard's not as dynamic as Tony after the catch. I mean, that's Tony's calling card. But they already had Shepard, who was getting five and ten yards sometimes for free with this route running and his chemistry with Daniel Jones. The last thing is, and I think this is maybe a self-scouting, where we see Jason Garrett in one way in terms of what he adds or takes away from the offense, where they maybe see Jason Garrett as some offensive genius. I just don't see, you know, with Kadarius Tony in our pre-draft analysis, we're saying, is he going to land with a creative offensive coordinator? Is he going to land in an offense that is going to allow there to be a role that intersects with where he's at in his development and bring him along? And I just don't know that Jason Garrett is the person that I want asking to be creative when it comes time to get the value out of your first round pick. So, you know, at least starting with Tony, I just don't know if I like the fit in this offense. And I don't think that he adds something necessarily that they didn't already have, but just in the form of multiple players. Yeah, I mean, I think that makes a lot of sense, Zig. I think the the key point you made there, which which is more interesting, which is most interesting to me, is it kind of was a break from what we had seen as far as taking the boom-bust player. I mean, in recent draft classes, Dave Gettleman has taken Andrew Thomas, the safe pick. He's taken Dexter Lawrence, the IDL, at 17 overall with, you know, 
decent pass rushing ability for his size, good pass rushing ability for his size, but not overall much of an interior pressure type of guy. And he's kind of throughout his process kind of, it seems like he's gone for those safer high floor guys and at least high floor positions as well, the running back, the guard. And this was a little bit of a break from that. I think what I've kind of discovered on Tony, especially after kind of watching a lot of what Nick has done, a lot of the work he's done with the film and then diving into film myself is there is upside that he can be a bit of a different player than I think he's perceived as now Sig. I think he's perceived as this guy that needs the creative offensive coordinator, but I think there's upside when it comes to his route running ability, specifically in the slot. And that's something that I think Shepard does a good job of, but I don't know if he has just the natural physical traits and athleticism to have the same kind of ceiling as a Tony. So I think that's the one thing on Tony. How did you feel about their second round pick, though, Aziz Ojolari? Well, if we looked at this one before the draft, we would say this is a, a tremendous value where they got him. I think everybody agrees that it's a great fit. So if you look at Ojolari through the lens of he fell because he's not ideal size for an edge or ideal length for an edge in the NFL, that's okay because I think the Giants' defensive system is uniquely situated to take advantage of the talents of an edge rusher that don't necessarily come in an ideal package because of the multiple looks they have and because he's not necessarily going to have to be putting his hand on the ground. There's some issue with the, you know, maybe – with the knee, I don't know. That's something that's going to be hovering over this whole draft class that you know teams already were getting it out there that they could not do the normal medical workups that they did. So I think some teams maybe shied away from players that had any medical question. That could be part of the reason Ojolari also fell. But to get him and to get him after a trade down, uh, I think if they had taken Ojolari, so that's the thing, right? Like Kadarius Tony and how you mention him as a could become player, that that's more of a second round type player. Ojolari was already highly productive in key moments, big games against top competition. If they had taken him at number twenty and taken Tony in the second round, I don't think we would have blinked an eye. So I think that speaks well to the value of the draft class in general. And I think this is also one of those cases where the best value on the board intersected with the biggest need on defense, which also happened to intersect with a fit. So I think this pick is ideal for the Giants and, you know, something that I think even a best case scenario would not have been this good. That's an excellent point too, Sig, because Dan and I were a little worried with that second round pick because, what, four of the last five picks in the first round ended up being edges, so we were not really certain who was going to be around for the Giants at 42, and then they trade back to 50 and still land Aziz Ojolari, and then the Giants traded up in the third round to get cornerback Aaron Robinson at a UCF, and we've kind of seen a lot of teams adapt this strategy, load up your secondary with talent, and in Dan, in my estimation, based on the analytics, uh, it seems like a lot of teams are kind of going in that direction. Do you think the Giants may have carved themselves out a nice edge here by following what the Ravens, the Patriots, and the Dolphins have done, kind of prioritizing pass coverage and rebuilding the defense, not not necessarily neglecting the edge, but really just prioritizing the pass coverage, secondary specifically? I think if we can say, like, pick a lane, you know, I, I think we can look at how teams have built their defenses and you want to use pressure to make the job easier for the cornerbacks or you want to have good cover corners that allow the pass rush to get home. So I think that in this case, uh, we'll see about a Dory Jackson. We already know what they have in James Bradbury, who was excellent last year. They've thrown some resources at slot corner, and some of them have come up snake eyes, some of these rolls of the dice. And I think they really saw someone in Aaron Robinson that might be able to step in and be a full-time slot corner and play man coverage and free up the defense to do more of the things that they want to do. So I think you're right to look at it in that uh, the idea that they're trying to make things easier because they don't have premier edge rushers. They don't have premier pass rushers. They're trying to make things easier. Now, that being said, Leonard Williams, come on. And something more in general, as I think the NFL is coming around to the value of inside pressure, I think the NFL is also coming around to the idea of disruption is production, not necessarily just somebody who beautifully bends the edge and, and dips and strips the ball. So I think the Giants are situated well to take advantage 
We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. That's what you're talking about is uh, you know marrying coverage schemes to what your strengths are in your pass rush and making everyone's job easier. So I think that alignment is represented in how important they thought it was to have someone, an athlete like Robinson, who I think is ready to step in. And when you look at you know the Cowboys, uh, you look at now the three wide receivers that Washington can put out there. I think speed is important. I think athleticism is very important at the cornerback position, and they were able to get it pretty cheaply. Yeah, I think you're spot on there, Sig. And I think it's interesting you said, you know, disrupt. Teams are starting to look for different things when it comes to. Credit Karma has always been there to help you make better financial decisions. And now they want to help you even more. With a Credit Karma Money Spend account, you can be rewarded for good money habits. Credit Karma Money is a brand new checking account where you can win cash reimbursements for making purchases. Just pay with your debit card, and if you win, you'll be notified on the spot, and your Instant Karma cash will be added back to your spend account. Open your FDIC-insured spend account for free. There's no minimum balance requirements, no overdraft fees, and free withdrawals from a network of over 50,000 ATMs. And when you make a purchase between June 8th and June 30th, you'll automatically be entered to win $1 million. Right now, visit creditkarma.com backslash winmoney to open your free account and start winning Instant Karma. Go to creditkarma.com backslash winmoney to sign up for free and start winning. That's creditkarma.com slash winmoney. Instant Karma is sponsored by Credit Karma. No purchase necessary. Exclusions and terms apply. See rules. Banking services provided by MVB Bank Incorporated. Member FDIC. Maximum balance and transfer limits apply. How to rush the passer disruption is important. I remember Daniel Jeremiah tweeted out something prior to the draft about how, in his estimation, from him talking with a lot of NFL GMs and execs around the league, they're starting to prioritize power from the pass rushing standpoint right. over that edge bend. And like you said, that beautiful ability to kind of get around the edge, which is interesting because the Giants kind of took a, a more edge edge focus, I would say, prospect in the fourth round in Ellerson Smith. I feel like with him, they're going to probably be looking to maximize his get off off the line of scrimmage, his length, things of that nature. But at the same time, they obviously have, like you said, Leonard Williams already on the roster. I think B.J. Hill is an incredibly underrated interior pass rusher, and we're going to finally see that this season as he gets more reps. But in conjunction with that, I think what we saw is NFL teams starting to realize the importance of keeping that interior pocket, the integrity of the interior pocket. And so we saw in this draft class, 13 offensive linemen come off the board in the first 53 picks. That was a big number, 13 in the first 53. And then 17 came off the board before the Giants even selected Aaron Robinson at 71 overall. Do you think this is a trend we're starting to see with teams finally understanding, or my mind finally understanding, the importance of prioritizing the offensive line via the draft? Or do you think it was just kind of dependent on the strength of this class? A little bit of both, uh, if I can not say that. I think it was a really strong offensive tackle class, even down to the point where in the third and fourth round, we may see some long-term starters at offensive tackle uh, come out of this class, or maybe there'll be long-term starters eventually on the interior. So it was a, a pretty deep class. It wasn't necessarily a class that had those four marquee tackles like last year's class. I, I'll you brought up the name Daniel Jeremiah. I'll bring up uh, DJ again, I think he put out there that teams are starting to realize that the weakest player on the offensive line is more important than the strongest player on the offensive line. So I think teams are really trying to make it so that uh, they have enough depth 
that. And also, we can look at the story of injuries in your own division. You know, what happened when the Cowboys line was depleted by injuries? What happened when the Eagles line was depleted by injuries? All of these things that you're trying to leverage, things that look like strengths, now all of a sudden become liabilities, and they may in turn um, magnify shortcomings of your quarterback or shortcomings of your skill position groups because they're just, you're just not able to to harvest the value they can create or, or worse, um, you were getting away with some things because your offensive line was playing so well. So I think t- teams just want to see good depth, one to seven, and versatility. That's something I think we saw a lot in this offensive line class. He, you know, Rashawn Slater can play five positions and so on, and Landon Dickerson can play all three positions inside and so on down the line, where that could be the difference between your season falling apart or it holding together uh, when you take some guys maybe out of position in terms of your depth chart, but they're able to save your season because that's what it called for because of the number of injuries we see sometimes on these offensive lines. Yeah, I think you're spot on there as well, Sig. And my question for you is, my next question for you kind of is more of a general philosophy question. Yeah. I'm curious on this one about on your take on this one because there's been a lot of discussion on how day two picks at wide receiver over the last decade have actually outperformed day one picks. Some people would consider at that point, you know, using top 32 capital at that specific position wide receiver to be a bit of a reach or maybe a misallocation of resources. I have a couple general rules for my how I would run a draft. I would never take a running back in the first round. I would never take a running back in the top five, top ten. I would look to avoid interior defensive pass interior defensive linemen who don't consistently rush the passer with a top thirty two pick. I have a question. Do you have any general rules that you would kind of follow or is yours kind of more dependent on the class and things of that nature? Like for example, with that wide receiver trend, do you think that's something we should keep an eye on or that's kind of just something based on the classes we've run into the last ten years? I think it's a little bit more of a fluke and something that we'll probably move on from. Uh in terms of looking at first round wide receivers as a maybe less sure, less consistent payoff than other positions. However, I do think that we saw a shift. So we can always see in the NFL through free agency in the draft, a snapshot of on the whole, and you know, you got 32 organizations who all have different ideas. So we're, we're averaging this all out, right? But what did we see in free agency this year? Wide receiver, the air was let out of the balloon, right? Ken Galladay, you know, the Giants made the big splashy signing. But otherwise, a lot of wide receivers were waiting longer on the market than they expected. A lot of wide receivers that thought they were going to get multi-year deals maybe to secure their future didn't. And I think the position is becoming more specialized. I think we're seeing, even in this draft, with some of the lighter receivers, like Tutu Atwell, that maybe the threshold of the lower part of the threshold in terms of BMI or weight is something that teams are rethinking. And I just don't know if it's important to have a number one receiver now. How important is it to have a receiver like Jamar Chase, who can win every part of the field, can win without running, can win after the catch, can win at the catch point. Because if your offense is deploying these guys, in, and you can look at the Giants' wide receiver group. You know, Kenny Galladay's strengths are very different from Sterling Shepard's strengths are very different from Darius Slayton's strengths. So it's up to the offensive coordinator to be calling their number on plays to ask them to do things that they're doing well. So I don't know that a number one receiver is important. And the other thing just a sheer numbers question is how many plays does a wide receiver really influence the game? You know, even the great wide receivers, seven, eight, nine, that's much lower than your offensive line or defensive line or, you know, players that are, are usually in the mix in the part of the play that determines the outcome of the play a lot more often than wide receivers are. So I think both of those trends could lead to the devaluation of wide receiver overall. But you wouldn't know it from this year because it was another really strong class. And that's another thing that might be influencing us is the last three wide receiver classes have been really strong, probably part of the reason that there's downward pressure on free agent wide receiver contracts. Now, as far as my own personal draft rules after that long, wordy answer, um, I, I don't think that you take somebody – where you say their strength is against the run on defense, I don't think you take them until the third day. Uh, I think likewise, if we're talking, 
and it, look, look, if we're talking about tackles, um, and I think you can look at in this tackle class, right? You have some of these guys like Sam Cosme, who you all will be facing twice a year, or uh, Brady Christensen, who the uh, Panthers got, I think, after on the other side of that trade where you all moved up for uh, Aaron Robinson. They have the size. They have the movement. They have enough functional strength, but maybe they don't have a mean streak or they're not a road grader. Well, I'll take that because it's the old George Young planet theory, you know, applied to offensive tackles. There's only a certain number of guys who have the frame and the functional strength to hang an offensive tackle who can move and dance with NFL defensive ends and edge rushers. So I like that much more than a guy who's a gamer and a glass eater who, you know, will fight to the end. Um, some of the other things, you know, that I, I look at, um, you know, likewise, we're looking at those linebackers, another position where the thresholds are going down where a 215, 220-pound linebacker or somebody that was seen as a safety linebacker tweener, now is somebody that can be seen as a core part of a defense. We'll see with uh, Owusu Kormoa uh, with the Browns, how that works out. But I think, likewise, you know, um, if the strength of a linebacker is against the run, if it's a two-down linebacker, I think if the if we have a box safety, we'll look back at that Raiders pick of Jonathan Abram. Like, a box safety should not go in the first round. Uh, things like that, because it's about the direction that the game is going. Another one I'll toss out there, just personal preferences. Like I didn't see Mac Jones as a first round quarterback because he can't produce or add for you outside of structure, and so much more of the NFL game happens outside of the structure of the play as it's drawn up than in college, that that can really skew your evaluation. So, to, you know, just to put a, a cherry on top of all this, I had Eric Galco, who's doing all kinds of stuff all over the football world now on my show last month, and we had an extensive conversation about how some plays in your evaluation of a, a collegiate player translating to the pros, some plays matter more than others, and some plays don't matter at all. Maybe even 50% or 75% of the plays when you watch a game, that, that doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That's not, that's not a simulation of NFL football. So I'm always looking at that lens when I'm deciding what I would, if I was you know, theoretically putting my team's valuable draft capital up, I want players whose games look like they're going to translate to how the NFL game is being played now and it's going to be played tomorrow and not how the college game was played around them or how the NFL game was played. It's really interesting stuff, Sig, and I, you brought up the Browns draft class. You brought up a lot of specific draft class, and now I have to ask you, yeah. which team, in your opinion, had your favorite overall draft class in the 2021 draft? Yeah, it was a spoiler, right, the Browns. I, I, I love everything the Browns have done this offseason. It's incredible offseason for the Browns. It really has been. They're thinking like a winning team. They're thinking like a team that is figuring out where at the margins they can improve. Um, I, I, we talked about coverage versus uh, rush. How about both? <laughs> you know, when you add Greg Newsom, who is an interchangeable piece, they already added Troy Hill. Uh, you have now that depth along with Denzel Ward to really you know playing a team like the Steelers. I think we should always look at the division, right? Teams are always trying to win their division first and foremost. So you have the three wide receivers for the Bengals. You have the three wide receivers, four really, for the Steelers. Um, we'll leave the Ravens out of this conversation. But the point is, Greg Newsom is going to help a lot there. Uh Koromoa, I, I think, is a player that Joe Woods, I think some teams were looking at him and saying, what is he? What are we going to do with him? And Joe Woods, like, he's a weak side linebacker. We're going to let him, we're going to let his athleticism rise to the surface. And maybe they'll do some things, some deception, some different looks with his versatility, with his ability to play man up in the slot. But again, with the cornerback depth, um, they have a lot of possibilities. Anthony Schwartz was a player that went uh, maybe a little bit earlier than some expected, but I like what he can add to this passing game as a tactical element that has to be accounted for. I think it's a little bit of a hedge against Odell Beckham's health. Uh, James Hudson was a pick that I really loved because what you have here is a defensive lineman converting to offensive tackle who has all the requisite athletic boxes checked and he's just new to the position uh, but he plays with that that uh, mentality of a defensive player but this is a player so again self-scouting 
you've got Bill Callahan. So why wouldn't you take a swing at somebody who, if he if he can be developed, can be a top half of the league starter at offensive tackle because you have the resources in house to do that. Tommy Togiai is another guy that is just a pain. You know, this is that that guy you wait. I mean, and I think he can develop some pass rush, but he's just a pain. He's just a pain in the opposition. The way he disrupts plays. Tony Fields, I think, could interestingly develop as a linebacker. They could use bodies there, but you know, he'll get some special teams to fry away the count. And Demetric Felton was one of my favorite picks of the third day. He's going to give them a return specialist. He's going to give them somebody who can uh, add some versatility to their offensive looks. He can play running back. He can run routes out of the slot. So just these little things, they can give you that edge on a key two-point conversion or a key conversion in the fourth quarter because you can always be showing the defense something that they weren't prepared for when you have that. I think versatility was a big theme in this year's draft. And, yeah, we just keep heaping praise on the Browns. And who would you, on the flip side of that, say the yeah. most questionable draft for you? Well, you'll, y'all will like this. I, you know, the Cowboys. And, I mean, I want to say the Texans, and it's not just because they didn't have picks because I, I think they're flailing, but we're all piling on to the Texans. Yeah. Uh, but with the, with the Cowboys, I just think that here's – and there's two ways to look at this, okay? One way is that after the way things went last year, they went to Dan Quinn, and they're like, what do you want, basically? Like, like here, you make the shopping list. And you can see that there's a clear theme with the athleticism, with the length that they added to this defense. But when you look down this draft, Parsons and Joseph and, and uh, Cox and, and Ball and, you know, and Sean Wright, I think, was somebody most people had in the sixth or seventh round. I get it, a six-four corner. Um, you know, you have so many picks that you – I mean, so for instance, let's take Kadarius Tony, right? So maybe Kadarius Tony is going to be somebody that's like a project. We always hear about this stuff after the fact, right, where teams understand, well, he has to have, kind of have a babysitter. We have to have somebody that's making sure he's showing up on time and things like that, right? But the Cowboys have a draft class full of guys that might need a babysitter, right? I mean, they have a draft class full of guys that have big questions. And the thing is, I get it. You maybe have a player or two on your draft board to say that well he might be a headache, he might be a wasted pick, but if we can get his get the light bulb to turn on, wow, what are we going to get? But you don't necessarily have a draft class full of players like that, and I think it just showed a blind spot in the Cowboys' evaluations, and and something that could really come back to haunt them. And I you know I think even Tennessee we can include under this too, where you have Caleb Farley, like uh, Eric Stoner says, no one used to have a black problem, and um, um, you know Rashad Weaver already whatever character background they did on him that seemed to fail. Dylan Radins is a fine pick, but that just is an echo of Isaiah Wilson, how you have a first-round pick that isn't even on the roster the next year. Um, so the Titans are a team, I think, that are they're trying to catch up to the rest of the AFC, but they might be falling behind because they're just not making these sound investments. And I think with the Cowboys, there's a, a little hint of desperation there, and that doesn't always lead to the best decision-making. It's interesting, and uh, it's definitely something I'm sure Giants fans love to hear. So, yeah. so um. Speaking of the NFC East, which NFC East team would you peg as the favorite as of right now? And if it's not the Giants, where would they fit in? I'll say Washington, just because I don't think we understand how invigorating it is for a team to have Ryan Fitzpatrick come into the building. And I have no idea how good this offense can be with a functional quarterback, not just with a functional quarterback, but a quarterback who can add value, extending plays, uh, a quarterback that's going to get a lot more value out of Terry McLaurin. Uh, now you add in Curtis Samuel, and of course, Scott Turner already knows his game and what to do with him, and it will add his speed. Uh, I think, of course, you have this offense, uh, you know, had speed with Diami Brown, like what Logan Thomas was doing, Antonio Gibson, I think, is just scratching the surface. So this we already know what the defense can do. And Jamin Davis was an excellent, excellent fit for them. And this, again, because of their defensive line, they can get a lot more value out of a rangy middle linebacker that can maybe draw that back seven together. Where the Giants fit in, I think, it's, I mean, guys, we're just talking about Daniel Jones, right? I mean, it's, isn't that really what this entire – Daniel Jones and to a certain extent, Jason Garrett? You already saw the defense really come together last year. And 
you know, you're going to add a few pieces in Ojolari and Robinson that can make them be more effective. Uh, I think that it all comes down to Daniel Jones. And I wish I could say year two in the Jason Garrett system, et cetera, et cetera. Daniel Jones is going to really turn the corner. But I think we've seen his limitations. I think we've seen where he does have strengths. And I just don't see Jason Garrett as the kind of quarterback, I'm sorry, the coach that can make things easier for the quarterback like Kyle Shanahan does for his quarterbacks, like Sean McVay did for Jared Goff for a while. I just don't know that he's going to allow the, uh, uh, Daniel Jones to meet the game halfway by designing plays that make life easier for him, especially when, again, as we saw last year, Jason Garrett seems like the kind of offensive coordinator that is trying to gain 10 yards on three plays instead of maximizing the explosive value of the players he has on his roster. And that's just, until I see proof that's going in the direction, it's hard for me to think that that's going to change. And that actually leads into my next question about Garrett. But I do want to first, before we do that, touch a little bit more on the NFC East and talk a little bit more there. So I think it's interesting. I think what you mentioned about that Washington football team it's being slept on a lot by Giants fans that I've stumbled across on Giants Twitter. A lot of people are really underestimating what Ryan Fitzpatrick will add to that roster. I think they're looking at raw stats. I think they're looking at maybe the game he had when he was with the Tampa Bay Buccaneers a couple years ago against the Giants where he had to be benched. And yeah, he throws some turnovers, but generating offense, there's a reason why Miami multiple times last year had to pull Tua from the game to put Ryan in because Tua wasn't generating offense. And Ryan was generating offense for them, and at time, a lot of time last year, Daniel Jones was not generating offense for the Giants. They were throwing for 160 yards, throwing for 170 yards, so I would say they're the favorite as well for that reason, but I would say not to count out the Cowboys just yet because no. although I agree with everything you said about their defense, and I agree with everything you said about the fact that not only are they asking these new guys, yeah, he got the shopping list, I agree with you, Dan Quinn, but they have to change systems. It's never easy to change systems in one offseason. It seems like it's going to be another one of those offseasons. It's not fully back to where they were as far as getting on the field and with the players. But the other thing is, like you mentioned, I mean, it's not just this year when the Cowboys – the Cowboys for years now have been taking on these types of talents with checkered off-field concerns and, like you said, loading up the pantry with them. And when you have one or two, it might be okay, but – all that factored in, but I'm still not convinced any team other than Dallas can consistently generate offense in this division. I do think Ryan will help that, but I'm curious if you think that Ryan Fitzpatrick's addition, plus what they've done with Diami Brown and Curtis Samuel, plus Scott Turner, and really the, you know, Cosme might be able to play, might not. Rookie tackles, it's tough. I still have some questions about that offensive line there. Do you think that other than Dallas, the Washington will be able to generate consistent offense? I do, and I think it's because of the team speed they have. I think it's because it's – I just don't know what this Washington offense could look like if they aren't playing one of the worst quarterbacks playing that week as their quarterback. I mean, Alex Smith was painfully limited. Kyle Allen is a misadventure. Dwayne Haskins probably won't even see an NFL field again. And – it's an unknown, solve for X, X being how much was quarterback play holding back this offense last year. We know it was to some extent. We just don't know how much. And I like taking the the over on uh, propositions like that whenever it's someone like Ryan Fitzpatrick, who we know is going to play on the – I heard a good quote during the uh, draft. It was something like, it's easier to say whoa than to say sick em. You know, you want you want a player that you have to say, whoa, not a player that you have to figure out how to uh, you know light the fuse for them. And that's the thing with Ryan Fitzpatrick is he may live dangerously and sometimes a little bit too much on that boom bust edge. And I'm sure that's going to drive Ron Rivera a little bit crazy at first in terms of the outcome of plays. But what it is going to do is it. You you can you can withdraw more of the value there is. Terry McLaurin's one of the best wide receivers in the league. And we saw in his first game in the NFL, Case Keenum, he threw one long touchdown to McLaurin. He should have had two long touchdowns in that game. That's with Case Keenum. What's going to happen whenever it's Ryan Fitzpatrick? So I think that's just that's something that should make Washington Washington fans very excited. And then the other thing we saw, I mean, look, let's let's remember that Taylor Heineke. I think it's. I think we can say that Taylor Heineke played as well as Aaron Rodgers against that Tampa Bay defense. Better than Patrick Mahomes against that defense, right? 
No, you're not wrong. I mean, there are other factors, obviously, that Kansas City Chiefs offensive line would sure. have it, but you're right. I mean, they, they Taylor Heineke, you know, and who is a, has at least a similar kind of fight to his game as Ryan Fitzpatrick and a similar style, uh, was able to have some success against Tampa Bay where – New Orleans and Drew Brees, you know, they were stuck in neutral for the whole game. And Aaron Rodgers, because he's Aaron Rodgers, was able to make some things happen, but it, nothing came easy. And then we saw what happened with Kansas City. And yes, it's the offensive line, but uh, at the same time, I think we saw the Tampa Bay defense was really peaking at, in the playoffs. And when we look back at Washington's performance against them, it really shows promise as far as Scott Turner's play calling and the personnel they have. So that's another reason I think that they could turn the corner. I think that's spot on, Sig, because I think Scott Turner, to me, is one of the most underrated offensive play callers in the NFL right now. And I think a lot of the times people have asked me when watching Brian, Brian Fitzpatrick, why does it seem like he's always able to not only get the ball out quick, but get it decently down the field, usually in that intermediate range, to one-on-ones. And I've always said it's because he's a better processor than anyone gives him credit mm-hmm. for. Just because he throws a lot of turn, just because he commits a lot of turnovers, has nothing to do with how he sees the field. It's because he's taking a lot of chances, and that's a whole nother story, but... You put somebody like that who's had this much experience in the NFL at the quarterback position, who's generally a smart person even coming into the league, obviously. People know his background. And you pair him up with what I think is one of the best offensive coordinators. I think they will generate offense. So I'm with you on them as the favorite. But I do have a question on something you touched on a little earlier with Jason Garrett because there has been so much discussion this offseason among Giants fans that Joe Judge has brought in different offensive minds coming from the college game. He's upgraded the role and the of uh, Freddie Kitchens in the offense who had one chance to call a game last year. And there's some thoughts and discussion around, you know, this offense is going to look a lot different in 2021, even though Jason Garrett returns as offensive coordinator. To me, I almost feel like it's asking a lot right now in one offseason to get an offensive coordinator like Garrett, who's called plays for a long stretch of time, has a long sample size of doing it, even though he took that long break during his Dallas years and then until last year when he called to the Giants. Do you really see a guy like Jason Garrett changing a lot about the offense, or are you expecting to see a lot of what we saw in 2020 from a scheme standpoint? I would certainly expect more of what we saw in 2020. And I think you're right to point out that these guys that have been around the league for a while, unless, you know, there's someone like Bill Belichick. Bill Belichick, he has his weaknesses, especially in terms of player evaluation or trade and things like that. But he's if he sees something that beats him, if he sees something that gives him fits, or if he sees something that he's envious of, he'll steal it. And he's always reinventing himself. And Jason Garrett, it's no, we were wondering, we were wondering, oh, during all that stretch, because he was actually a, a pretty good offensive coordinator in the 20 to 2000s NFL. <laughs> you know, the NFL's changed, and I didn't see any evidence. Well, and it's, it's on multiple levels, guys, because some of it's play calling, some of it's just scouting the talent you have in your offense and how to maximize it, and then some of it's the quarterback. Some of it is coming to uh, a, a meeting of the minds with your quarterback. And understanding this is what this quarterback does well. This is his comfort zone. This is his comfort zone mentally. This is his comfort zone as far as, you know, the size of the field or routes. Or, you know, is he a rhythm passer? Um, you want, do you want to move the pocket for him? You know, just even maybe more than meeting him halfway. So if indeed the Giants are saying, well, we need more more cooks in the kitchen, so to speak, kitchens. We need more people giving input to what these plays look like and and things like that, how these players are used, that I almost think that's an implicit admission that Garrett wasn't the right hire. If you need people to come in and and add a little bit of flourish to what he's doing, then you are in purgatory because you're not really happy with what you have, but you're also not willing to move on from it. And I get it. It's sensitive and continuity is so important. But the problem is you have to decide on Daniel Jones' fifth-year option next year. And you have to decide if you're going to use this extra first-round pick that you have to take a quarterback. So, I would almost be looking at this season where, of course, you want to win, you want to go to the playoffs, and you want to have a division title and get things going in the right direction. The most important thing this season for the Giants is determining whether, because this is a, a decision that 
will affect the viability of this regime, how long they're going to last. This is a decision that will probably ripple at least for the next five years, if not longer, into this franchise. So if you're tinkering and saying, well, we need changes in offense because we're not happy with what we have in terms of the blueprint, then are you really going to get a chance to evaluate what Daniel Jones can do when you're also evaluating your offensive play calling and, and play design? I think it just it muddies the water. And unfortunately, I think it's probably going to look more like it did last year. The hope, the prayer is that you hopefully have Saquon Barkley for an entire season. You have Kadarius Tony now, who is a player that can add value with uh, his touches after the touch. And then you also have Kenny Galladay, who can win on those one-on-one plays. And at least Daniel Jones is the kind of quarterback who is bold enough to throw up those 50-50 balls and take advantage of what Kenny Galladay can do. But is Jason Garrett going to call those plays? Is, is this offense going to embrace the talents they have? I didn't see it with Evan Ingram last year. Um, I, I certainly didn't see a lot. It was a very brief time that we saw Saquon Barkley out there against the Steelers. But in that first game, I just didn't see any counterpunch, any kind of idea of, okay, well, if they're going to take this away, then we have to draw something up in the dirt in this game to be competitive. And that's what really worries me about the direction of this offense. Yeah, I think those are all fair points, Sig. And especially what you said at the end, it's the in-game adjustments that also seem to lack from his standpoint. But the main thing for me is what you said at some point in that breakdown, which was that you have to, as a coordinator, meet your quarterback. And you said halfway, and then you said more than halfway. I think you got to meet him well, well more than halfway. If you look at the first year. I don't think Pat Shermer ran a system in 2019 that he thought was exactly how he would run it if he had any quarterback in the NFL. I think he ran a system that was exactly how he would run it if he had Daniel Jones as his quarterback with a lot of half-field high-low reads, which Jones seemed to work really well with, a lot of mesh and a lot of crossing patterns and routes that are breaking either up or out toward the sideline. And Daniel Jones throws a pretty good ball on those crossing routes. He puts it in a pretty good spot for receivers to maximize yak and then you just see what you saw what you said earlier a lot of with Garrett a lot of try to get 10 yards in three plays a lot of routes that are breaking back toward the line of scrimmage which to me it just blows my mind how any coordinator at any level right now (laughs) be designing an offense where routes are breaking back toward the quarterback like it doesn't make any sense at all to me I try to put some kind of logic behind it yeah like you know it, it makes some sense Nick has talked this through me against some coverages you want to have spacing and you want to have you know, routes that like that, where you can take advantage of the way the defense is playing you uh, to find kind of like, you know, you, you hope your quarterback can scan the field quickly and get the ball out to the route breaking with open space. But in general, it just seems like a big way to hold back the offense. Yeah, the spacing concepts was way too common in the Giants' offense last year and so many linebackers and second level defenders were just sitting on it sig and that led to turnovers and Evan Ingram as you alluded to was not the type of tight end to be running that because he struggles with concentration and catching the football he's the kind of guy you want to get out in the space either horizontally or vertically use him to clear out up the seam and it just feels like he's never been utilized that way and I feel like that was the reason Jerry Reese drafted him back in 2017 (laughs) right Part. It kind of blows my mind. It's, he's such an enigma here in New York. But we wanted to get you out with one final question, not necessarily Giants-related, but possibly, but probably not necessarily. What's your prediction on how the Aaron Rodgers situation will kind of play out? Do you have any strong yeah. thoughts on that, Sick? Oh, man. Well, guys, I used to joke that Aaron Rodgers has a list of everybody who ever said anything bad about him ever. <laughs> you know? Like, I don't know the, how much of a joke that would be. It sounds like not too far from the truth. No, I mean, <laughs> I I really think that Aaron Rodgers does not back down from something that his brain tells him is true. And it's kind of like the, the Michael Jordan stuff, you know. And then I took it personally. Did that ever happen? Well, it actually didn't happen. But that's what drove me, you know. So, I look, Aaron Rodgers for this stuff to get out and Aaron Rodgers hasn't come out and dispel any of this. So nowhere have we heard from the Packers or Aaron Rodgers that any of this isn't true. You know, that, that this situation has been overblown. Um, we're just seeing some damage control. I think it was Matt Schneiderman in the athletic today writing that if it seems like the Packers brass are pleading with Aaron Rodgers to not leave the team with their public statements, that's because they are. And if Aaron Rodgers is in control of this situation and Aaron Rodgers has decided, what would he seem like? 
less than 5%, 2%, you know, different people who've covered the team for a long time saying it's a very, very low probability. Even the betting markets are coming around to it being a 30% chance or more that Aaron Rodgers isn't going to play for the Packers this year. So I just, if it's, you know, if it's Russell Wilson, different personality, right? Um, Aaron Rodgers, though, I think that this was set in motion last year when the Jordan Love pick came down. I think uh, Gutekunst just, I think you can be sometimes, too, your office can be too high up in the office building where you just don't understand how things run in the actual business and you can make decisions that have unintended consequences. I think we're probably going to see that play out here. I would be shocked if we see Rodgers play for the Packers again. Wow. Shock. I, I, that's a strong, so you did have a strong take on it. Yeah. Listen, if it ends up being Denver, I'm excited to Oof. see that for the mere, for the sheer fact that I'd love to see that ball travel in that mile high stadium. I'd love to see how that ball comes out of his hand. Cause that thing is going to, I mean that you, you look at it, obviously Drew Locke has his warts and a lot of the quarterbacks who have played there over the past recent years have had their warts, but the way that the, the ball comes out of Drew Locke's hand there and the way that it travels in the right. air, in that stadium, I would just love to see Rodgers throw there. It would be so fun from a fan standpoint. Especially to players like Jerry Judy, KJ yes. Hamler, Noah Fon. It would be a lot of fun. Cortland Sutton. Oh, yeah. Cortland's, healthy Cortland Sutton, man. Can't wait to see him again. All right, Sig, thanks so much for joining us. This was an awesome time for all of us. I really am glad you took the time to, st- to jump on with us. For those who uh, didn't hear at the beginning, you can follow all of Sigmund's work at Football Guys or you can follow his work on Twitter, where he's very active, tweeting a lot of good stuff. That's at Sigmund Bloom. A few more of you, if you follow him, he'll get to that 100K mark that I want him to get to. I know you don't care about that, Sig, but I think it's pretty cool. So on that note, thanks again for joining us. Any any final thoughts, any parting words for Giants fans? I still believe in Lorenzo Carter. I still like Lorenzo I, Carter. I, I, I still think like. there's a lot of potential there. I mean, cool. I think maybe he'll turn the corner this year. Um, no, I, I just – I think that uh, – you know, for Giants fans, it was good to see. I almost felt like we baited Dave Gettleman into trading down. Maybe yeah, I don't really feel the same way. <laughs> after, after he made fun of all of us clacking away on our keyboards, I think maybe uh, there's a, a, a new leaf, the old dog learning a new trick there. Um, you know, I, I just think that what we saw on the defensive side of the ball looks so good. I think that this was a team that still remained competitive and had a lot of fight in them. And it's just, a, again, a question of self scout and then otherwise, I, I just, you know, you, you teased at the end with Aaron Rodgers. I mean, it's a 365-day news cycle. It's so much fun to be a fan of the NFL because there's always something to be pondering, some new development. Now Tim Tebow's back, and every day there's something. Uh, we've got the schedule announcement coming up this week. That's going to get the wheels in our head turning, and it's great to talk to people like y'all that care about it that much and put your intellect and analytical abilities to understanding this endlessly fascinating game. Yeah, that's exactly how we feel doing So thanks again for joining us. Everybody else, have a great rest of your week, and we'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about, but why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, the trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.